Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I, wel- I welcome Dr. Nicole Mauritanio to discuss her new book, Confederate Exceptionalism, Civil War Myth and Memory in the 21st Century, published by the University of Kansas Press in 2019. The book begins with a puzzle. How can neo-Confederates distance themselves from violent white supremacy while also clinging to the symbols and narratives that tether the Confederacy to histories of racism and oppression in the United States. Dr. Moritanio demonstrates how the myth of Confederate exceptionalism nostalgically remembers the South through an amalgam of embodied and textual practices that alternatively embrace and revise the Confederacy's racial history. The book connects these myths to 21st century culture wars and politics in a way that could not be more relevant as we record this podcast in June 2020 during national American protests and renewed scrutiny of the powers of symbols of white supremacy. Dr. Mauritanio is an associate professor of rhetoric and communications as well as American studies at the University of Richmond, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. So um, before we explore your thesis and the extensive research that you did for this amazing book, um, how did you come to write this? You know, when did you start focusing on memory and Civil War myth? And does this connect with or break from previous work that you've done? Certainly connect with, though perhaps in ways I didn't initially intend. Um, I became interested in studying public memory when I was in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, My degree is actually in communication studies and history, and my dissertation had explored narratives of racial crisis in post-World War II Philadelphia involving local police. And for me then, memory became a way to kind of toggle between the two fields and to think about questions that I think really drive this book. Questions like, what are the stories around which groups coalesce? Um, How are stories told and retold? And then to think about how these stories have implications, serious implications, pertaining to race and racism. And so while I'm certainly not a Civil War historian by training, when I moved to Richmond in 2010 to start my position at the university, I found myself in a place where literally all of the issues that are central to my research were at the forefront of public culture. And so it felt like a very natural step to take in my work because I was asking all of these questions about this new place that I was calling home and finding myself trying to make sense of it all. Um, Also, as a transplant from New York originally, wanting to better understand my surroundings and the arguments that were being made by neo-Confederates in a place that was new to me, um, but also had a lot of very familiar aspects as well. You describe in the book a really um, potent encounter that you have walking your dog um, past a demonstration and, and, and how you try to engage the protesters. And I was wondering if you would share a little bit of that, because I think it sets up the book really well. Sure. So it had been in April of 2014, and I was walking my dog, as you mentioned, um, near the Virginia Museum of Fine Art. 
and had passed by a group of neo-Confederates called the Virginia Flaggers, which is an organization, a group that at the time was periodically protesting or actually regularly protesting on Thursdays and Saturdays outside of the Confederate chapel on the museum grounds for the reinstatement of the Confederate battle flag out front. So they wanted the Confederate battle flag to fly outside the chapel. And so at that point, I had seen this group. There were a handful of protesters and one who was wearing a Confederate battle flag t-shirt and also holding a Confederate battle flag. I just stopped and started to ask a couple of questions about what they were doing, what they hoped to accomplish, and to try to better understand what it was that they were doing um, or what they believed themselves to be doing. And so that initial conversation was informative in a number of ways. But as I was having that conversation, a photograph had been taken of me by the Virginia Flaggers official photographer and eventually posted to Facebook um, without my knowledge, actually. And so the photograph, as it appeared on Facebook, had been captured, captioned, rather, changing hearts and minds. And it had been sent to me um, by another, a counter-protester um, who regularly protested outside of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts um, against the flaggers. And he had shared it with me. And at that point, I found myself baffled um, and in a moment where I seemed to be implicated in this kind of Confederate conversion, um, which was certainly not the case, but spurred more of an interest on my part to better understand what they perceived to be happening. And we'll talk a little bit about um, how the movements use social media, um, late, hopefully later in the podcast. So I, I've been interviewing people and I listen a lot to their language. Um, given the focus on the ways in which the Confederacy and um, all of its intendant discourse you know, have been uh, normalized in, in, in our public culture, you thought really critically about your own language and how you wanted to assign agency. And I was wondering if you would just say a little bit about the choices you made and your journey on language, whether uh, it changed over time, uh, who helped you get the language that would 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 make you feel that you had captured everything you wanted to capture in your um, monograph? Sure. So as a rhetoric and communication studies scholar, certainly language is something I take very seriously. Um, and given this book's study of discourses surrounding race and racism, I wanted to be incredibly intentional about the choices that I made and be able to explain them, as you mentioned. So I wanted the language to reflect the work's orientation and do so in a way that also did not and explicitly did not replicate the racist systems of oppression that the book aims to dismantle, at least in a small way. Um, so, for instance, I was careful to make sure that I use the term enslaved as opposed to slave um, and enslaver as opposed to master um, in efforts to emphasize the agency of individuals in the act of enslavement and the institution of slavery. So 
the term slave being one that would otherwise connote what can be construed as inherent to one's existence. And I wanted to make sure that that was not the implication of the word that I was choosing. So it was not rather the action of one person. Um, Also, perhaps more controversially, I chose to capitalize the B in black throughout the book, um, except in cases of direct quotations uh, or interviews. Um, And that decision, um, the capital B, um, certainly is one that continues to be contested and debated, um, but for me was meant to signal culture or is meant to signal culture or a group of people. Um, and, and by extension, um, rather than their skin color, I chose not to capitalize the W in white, um, m- wanting to make sure that rather than just simply conforming to a prescribed code um, or style manual, um, something I'll readily admit I've done in the past. So when an editor on a journal article years ago had asked me to capitalize the W in white and the cap- capitalize the W or the B in black, um, I did it then. Um, but at this point in working on this book, I was really sensitized or even more sensitized to the implications of that decision. So I was, I was explicit about it um, in this work and making an active effort to decenter a category of privilege and power. So lowercase w and white. So as I mentioned, this is something, I mean, thinking about language is something that is, of course, a part of my my scholarship, a part of my field, but honestly has evolved for me over time, as I mentioned, having not not made those decisions in the past. Um, I've also been really attentive to other scholars in fields um, outside of my own. Um, I spoke with and consulted with colleagues across the university and the social sciences and the humanities, also to gain a better understanding of how different disciplines um, approach this question of language, um, which is not an easy one, certainly, uh, but also attending to the language that's being used in the public, in public culture. So speaking with community activists, historians, public historians, again, to better understand how how language is being deployed in different contexts in order to capture the most inclusive language possible. The book really benefits from your interdisciplinary approach, not just with the kind of care that you've taken with language. And I agree with you. There's a sort of a, a process that goes on, and it's a process carried on with editors, both the copy editor and the editor of the journal, of of how how one should. And sometimes you've even changed your mind since you've submitted the article. Um, but I wanted to ask you about another uh, set of concepts that you clarify in the book that I found exceptionally helpful, which was distinguishing myth from history. Um, Again, your field overlaps and this book overlaps with political science, with history. Um, So tell everybody a little bit about how you distinguish the two and how that is important for for this book. Sure. The term myth is being used in a very specific way throughout the book. And I think we often use the word myth to connote something that's patently untrue or false. Um, And while I would say that is the case here, the myth is false, um, I'm using it specifically to refer to stories that have 
assumed a sort of sacred status in public culture, stories that gain power through their telling and retelling. And so that version of myth or that usage of myth is really important because it captures the ways in which Confederate exceptionalism starts to really seep into public life in a variety of different ways um, that are not just explicitly through stories, but in artifacts and in objects. And so myth, um, while myth may align with the historical record, it doesn't necessarily have to align with historical record, um, much like memory. Um, And that's certainly what we see here, where there's a disjuncture between memory and history. Because certainly the historical record has shown that the Confederacy was an entity that was rooted in a desire to preserve the institution of slavery, maintaining human bondage. But certainly what we see over the course of the book, and certainly in public life, neo-Confederates maintain otherwise. And so we see that rift between what the historical record has borne out and what the the myth and mythology and and memory of the Confederacy, at least as as conveyed by neo-Confederates, is. And and tell us exactly what you mean by neo-Confederates. I think people know, but I'm not sure that they would use that term. Sure. So neo-Confederates is a term that I'm using to capture individuals who cling to a romanticized notion of the Confederacy, who subscribe to this idea of what I'm calling and elaborating as Confederate exceptionalism, that really is a way of updating lost cause ideology or lost cause mythology. So a belief system that maintains that the Confederacy was an entity, again, that fought to preserve states' rights and not the institution of slavery, an entity that was overpowered by Union forces, that was led by gallant generals who deserved to be valorized, um, that ultimately was a non-racist entity. And so neo-Confederates, I mean, certainly there is a spectrum of neo-Confederates, which I think is why the term can be complicated. Um, And I'm using it certainly in a a way to capture both the folks who I'm interviewing and observing who are members of organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the Sons of Confederate Veterans and other Confederate heritage groups but then also more broadly um, individuals who, again, are subscribing to this idea that the Confederacy is an entity that is or and was the kind of purest form of Americanism. That's great. And it leads us right to the sort of the heart of the book, which is, 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 is your thesis about well, what is this myth of Confederate exceptionalism? It, it builds on this lost cause myth that begins as early as 1866 and also a more general myth of American exceptionalism that you describe in the book as well. So would you just sort of spin out what is the myth of Confederate exceptionalism? What's the main claim of the book? And in in particular, how it is that these two myths 
serve as a sort of central material for this, the, the quote unquote updating um, that you describe? Sure. So the myth of Confederate exceptionalism is really one that I see as being used to enable neo-Confederates in the present moment in the 21st century to distance themselves from histories of racism and oppression, despite, as I mentioned, the historical record, despite the commitment to the preservation of slavery. And really what Confederate exceptionalism does is facilitate that distancing by shutting down any sort of discourse surrounding racism by labeling race as racism or labeling discussions of race as racism. Um, And so this means basically that the myth can update that lost cause mythology by seizing elements of the lost cause and American exceptionalism by extension um, and ensuring that in each of these, in a number of different ways, that the myth of Confederate exceptionalism can be essentially normalized, um, that the Confederacy becomes a part of a fairly, at least for neo-Confederates, benign backdrop um, for, for public life. So while Confederate exceptionalism is the main theoretical intervention of the book, I use the museum as its organizing framework and kind of through line by arguing that essentially if we look at the state of Virginia as a neo-Confederate museum, we can observe the ways in which the myth of Confederate exceptionalism suffuses the landscape, that it is embedded in song, it's embedded in museum exhibits throughout the state, we can see it in rituals, we can see it in social media, and again, of course, in public artifacts like monuments. You know, we all read a book in the moment that we read it. And, you know, I've been reading your book over the last week when um, the subject of monuments is in our, in our moment and also the subject of uh, Richmond and Monument Avenue is, 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 is right in front of us. Um, recently, the early June, I think it was like 11th, something like that, uh, protesters toppled a statue of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States. The, the mayor had already announced um, uh, an ordinance that would remove those four monuments. So I, I guess instead of starting with the present, since your book is was written before all of this happened, if you could take us back in Chapter 5 where you talk about Monument Avenue um, as historical diorama and sort of set the scene for those people who haven't been to Richmond as to you know, what is on Monument Avenue how, and how the history of how it was set up and what it was intended to convey. Monument Avenue is known in Richmond and throughout the country as a of the lost cause mecca, essentially, where over a stretch of roughly two miles in a residential neighborhood, a predominantly white and elite residential neighborhood, I want to add, we have five monuments to Confederate leaders, starting with the Robert E. Lee Monument, which had been dedicated in 1890. 
and successive monuments to Jeb Stewart, Confederate General Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States, and then ultimately Stonewall Jackson and Matthew Fontaine Maury. So those monuments had been erected and dedicated between 1890 and 1929 um, through that residential thoroughfare. But I think what's important about Monument Avenue, not only thinking about the monuments, but about the site's development, is that Monument Avenue was a site that emerged around the monuments. So that essentially this very elite thoroughfare was one that was created around the monuments themselves. So some of the earliest images, some of the earliest photographs of Monument Avenue showing, for instance, the dedication of the Lee Monument in 1890 show not a whole lot around of it, uh, uh, not a whole lot around it. Um, but certainly development over the next several decades. But in that creation of Monument Avenue, we have a thoroughfare that was really designed to be exclusionary by its very nature. So looking at the historical record, particularly advertisements that were trying to encourage individuals to purchase land in the area, um, because it was essentially a speculative land venture with nothing around it initially. Potential buyers were being promised that this would be the next big thing in the city. This would be a good investment of their money. And so, Nicole, Nicole, what was there before? Like, why did they they put this there uh, in the sort of an empty space in order to encourage development? That is, is that the story? Well, there had been tobacco fields there, um, but there had been a lot of, oh, so there was a lot of open land. Um, and again, this placement of the Robert E. Lee monument um, would be one that would kind of anchor a neighborhood, a future neighborhood. Um, and so when advertisements were circulating in the local newspaper, there were advertisements that were saying to potential buyers, if you purchase in this area, people of African descent will be excluded. And so from its very beginning, from its earliest history, Monument Avenue, as we know it today, is anchored in a history of racism, um, is anchored in a history of exclusion. Um, so from the very start, it was designed with this goal in mind um, during the era of Jim Crow. And, and that's different from some other monuments where they're placed near public space, courthouses, um, modes of transportation, so that Black citizens, as they walk by, are bombarded with this symbols of white supremacy. But this is very, very different from that. Right. This was constructed as an exclusionary space, as a, as a space of intimidation, a way to intimidate Black people in, in the city. Um, you use this term throughout the chapter, diorama, which I think reminds a lot of us of being in elementary school and glue. Um, but you use this to help explain the purpose and the effect of Monument Avenue. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. 
Well, and using the term diorama, I actually was intending to conjure that kind of elementary school, um, perhaps memory, at least that was a memory that I had as a second grader putting together a diorama um, of using the the plastic figures and glue. Um, It made me think about Night at the Museum um, and other kind of more contemporary popular culture artifacts. But the reason I chose it is because I think it has a very specific way of thinking about the space or it represents a specific way of thinking about the space. Um, Because Monument Avenue has been a site that neo-Confederates repeatedly have called for the protection, quote unquote, and preservation of. Um, And what I see in those calls and what I'm arguing in the book is those calls for preservation and those calls for protection are essentially ways and mechanisms for attempting to freeze the historic thoroughfare in time. And so making and calling Monument Avenue a historic diorama is a way to remind us that what essentially is being conjured is a, is a freeze, right? is a pause, is a way to basically capture a moment in time in history um, that never changes. So it actually in some ways becomes completely divorced and absent from, from the historical record. So by calling for the protection of Monument Avenue and its preservation, what we see from neo-Confederates and here in these arguments are ways of celebrating essentially a very beautiful space and divorcing it from its history. Though certainly within the past few weeks, what we have observed is that that argument, that call for a restoration or preservation of Monument Avenue as a historical habitat diorama um, are now untenable. Um, Those arguments just can't be made anymore. But certainly since I've been here and for much longer, Monument Avenue has been the place um, or has been a place where repeatedly we've calls for its preservation, for the insurance, for the assurance of its um, pristine nature. Before we talk about recent events, there is a picture in this book that has haunted me all week, which is of human beings, men and white men and white women who are making a human Confederate flag underneath the statue of Robert E. Lee. And it's it's impossible to describe this photograph, but um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the the moment that that of that happens and the importance of that image to to the argument that you make in the chapter. Well, I mean, I think that that image, and certainly the image becoming essentially a launching pad for other popular cultural artifacts. So in the book, I use both the photograph, the original photograph of the Lee Monument during the unveiling of the Stewart Monument in 1907, but then also that photograph becoming a postcard. And I think that that's a really critical move in 
the argument that I'm making, because this is not simply a frozen moment. Um, the photograph of the Lee Monument with the kind of human Confederate flag, but that it becomes a postcard, that it becomes colorized, that it becomes something that people can purchase and ultimately send to friends and family across the country as a kind of icon of Richmond, um, as a capturing of a, of a, of a culture. Um, and that postcard, if we think about postcards and what they tend to signify is something fairly mundane. Um, and I think it speaks to the ways in which Confederate exceptionalism has suffused uh, public culture, because if you can purchase it in a, in a postcard um, and send it and it will be received by someone, whether near or far, um, there's something normalizing about it. Um, in much the same way as when we think about other forms of photography um, and images that have been transformed into postcards, say, for instance, um, lynching photographs um, that became kind of souvenirs um, and used um, as a way to, to manifest publicly the spectacle and the brutal spectacle of lynching in the United States. And so I see this photograph and ultimately this postcard as a way to further normalize, quote unquote, um, the Confederacy um, in, a, in a very powerful, though seemingly subtle way. So you're in Richmond, I think, as we're talking today. Um, everything is so disembodied right now. What how, Are you surprised with what has happened in Richmond? Are you surprised with, um, well, I'll just ask it. Are, are you surprised with how uh, quickly the national conversation about monuments has changed? What, what does it look like in Richmond? Um, and, and what's obviously this book went to press in 2019. What, what more would you add about monuments in Richmond um, today? So starting with the question about surprise, on the one hand, I would say, if you had asked me then, when the book first came out, will the monuments be coming down? I would have said yes, then, but it's only a matter of time, but how much time? I think what's been most surprising about the current moment, at least for me, was waking up initially to news of the graffiti on the monuments across the city, and then going out to see it myself, and it's still being there. And that may seem like a very small thing, but what has struck me in Richmond over the past 10 years that I've lived here is that every time a monument has been graffitied or an act of political vandalism has taken place, the city cleans it very quickly, um, so much so that there have been times when I've seen news about a, an act of political vandalism and gone over to the monuments to try to take a picture or to take a look myself. And the city has already got folks out there power washing the monument um, to ensure that the graffiti, that the vandalism is erased. 
And so what was really striking to me several weeks ago was that for the first time, you could walk Monument Avenue and actively see graffiti on the monuments. And it was extraordinarily powerful because also we're not talking just simply one message. We're seeing a confluence of messages, um, of, of protest messages, of messages in different colors, um, which I think is interesting in a, variety, in a number of different ways. Um, to make these monuments um, a different form of public art now. Um, and that's been surprising to me in that while I initially in expected that the city was going to start power washing the monuments immediately in order to return them to their previous quote unquote pristine status, they have in fact remained as essentially canvases for political protest and really transformed into a new form of public art, which I think is really extraordinary. And that was something I would not have necessarily predicted, um, certainly then when the book came out. Um, because now the Robert E. Lee Monument in particular in Richmond has become a site of pilgrimage and memorial where Folks are coming to Richmond, coming to the site of the monument um, and taking pictures with it and protesting in front of it and performing in front of it and using it as, a, again, as I said, a canvas um, for different forms of public art and performance. Um, and again, that was something that I would not have necessarily anticipated. Whether the monuments will come down, certainly it is still a matter of time. Um, right now, there are some political machinations I think that need to be addressed, um, a court-ordered injunction, but the pressure continues to mount. And I think it will be, again, it may not happen as immediately as initially it seemed, um, but it it is coming. So. Um... Mayor Stoney and his administration were clearly thinking about this before the protests. What, what, it, what is the political dynamic there of uh, an African-American mayor? And I don't know enough about your city council or even how um, government works within the city. What, what, what has been the environment on those boards among the other elected and appointed officials? Well, I mean, as you said, Mayor Stoney had been and has been speaking out about the monuments and on the monuments for quite some time. In fact, following the deadly violence in Charlottesville in 2017, Mayor Stoney, um, or actually prior to the deadly violence in, in Charlottesville um, in June of 2017, so just two months prior to Charlottesville's violence, um, Mayor Stoney appointed a Monument Avenue Commission, which was tasked with studying, producing a report, and a set of recommendations for what to do with Monument Avenue, essentially. And among the commission's recommendations was the removal of the Jefferson Davis Monument specifically, and the creation of context for the remaining monuments, um, at least as a starting point. Um, and so 
certainly Mayor Sony has shown and had shown interest in possible removal, in appointing a commission to explore, to provide further historical detail, um, to educate the public surrounding what these monuments meant, what they continue to mean, um, and what they signify on the landscape. But the commission's report was produced in the summer of 2018, and nothing has really happened since then. Um, so I think that what we're seeing now is really in part some of the frustration in response to a lack of action um, on the part of the mayor um, and the city. So while there may have been some maybe initial goodwill um, on that front, um, right now there's there's certainly a lot of frustration that nothing had happened in the interim. Whenever I read these books, I always tell myself that I'm not going to be surprised by the care with which the statue makers take to communicate the intricacies of the message. And in the context of the lost cause, the, the things that you describe about the 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 Davis statue of him giving this speech as he resigns from the Senate and behind him is this personification of vindication, um, which represents the myth of the lost cause. And I, and I, I think it really speaks to, well, and obviously you make this point throughout the book, just, just the, the remarkable care that was taken in creating these images and and being very deliberate about their content. Um, it's just extraordinary uh, to me. Absolutely. And I think in ways too that, I mean, certainly the Vindicatrix is a fairly explicit reference um, of vindication, but each semester when I take students to Monument Avenue to, to walk around, I mean, even just walking a several blocks and stopping in front of each of the monuments, I mean, we can talk about how the monuments speak and what they say, even when there isn't necessarily an icon perhaps as explicit as the Vindicatrix. So standing in front of the Lee Monument, for instance, and just looking at its sheer size um, and its placement um, relative to the neighborhood, how it kind of engages with its surroundings. Um, there's, it says a lot about how we, um, as as observers, are supposed to feel about the individuals who are being celebrated, who are being commemorated, um, and and how we should feel about them. Um, and it it's it's extraordinarily powerful again, even when it's not as explicit as the Vindicatrix. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about gender. Um, most of the statues are male. There are occasional female images that that are, are placed there as icons, such as in this statue. Um, in general, as you think about the monuments and you think about who uh, protects the monuments, do you see distinctions in, in gender in your research? Certainly. I mean, the monuments on Monument Avenue would not have been dedicated, produced, 
um, had it not been for the efforts of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And so when we think about who was behind the creation of the monuments, who was behind the celebration, and really who was, a sh- who was key and instrumental to ensuring that the myth not only exists, but that it exists in material form, in these very, very durable material forms, I would add, it all goes back to the women. Um, and so the United Daughters of the Confederacy whose headquarters is actually now around the corner from Monument Avenue. So on the Arthur Ashe Boulevard, um, right next to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Um, The United Daughters of the Confederacy really has been, um, as I said, instrumental um, in the efforts to not only celebrate and commemorate the Confederacy, but to continue to protect the myth. Before we talk a little bit about social media and hashtag tarp wars, I'm wondering if there's if there's anything else either relevant to the monuments or to the, the moment we're he, in here in 2020, June, uh, end of June, uh, that you wanted to add from this incredibly rich work. Well, I think the one thing that I would add just in thinking about the current moment is not so much the question of will they come down because I think they will, is as much as what will be done with them. Um, How will they be preserved? Where will they be preserved? Within what context will they be placed? I think these are going to be really, really important questions for the city and for the state to be able to address. But I am hopeful that any efforts that are made to eventually make these statues public once again are done with the conversation in close conversation and consultation with communities throughout the city. Um, So I think, and I hope sincerely that the work that is done moving forward um, that helps us to think about these monuments more critically um, is, is a collaborative one is a community oriented and community based one. No, and it seems like there would be a big question as to whether to clean them first before you displayed them. Um, you know, I was as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, you know, where should we put the statue of Teddy Roosevelt that's going to be taken down from in front of the Museum of Natural History? Uh, I'm in New Jersey, here in New York, um, and it made me recall going to uh, a propaganda museum in in Shanghai. Um, and and just and thinking about how we frame this and this word propaganda and whether we could have propaganda museums or or what that would even mean and i i don't know what do you think of that word is that is that the wrong word to think about uh this sort of re- symbolism of white supremacy i don't think so um i think it's a way it becomes an entry point into thinking about how the monuments work rhetorically um, I think that certainly propaganda is, of course, a loaded term, um, but it is one that is fundamentally about persuasion. And that is what the myth of the lost cause tries to do, is persuade of the legitimacy of the Confederacy. So, I mean, I think that that may be a starting place. Um, I think it would be interesting to think about how 
how to approach the, the framework, um, because I think it is going to be really complicated um, in order to attract and bring in different communities to be able to experience it and to do it in a way that is responsible. I think it does, it does capture precisely what these monuments not only do, um, but their intent and their kind of movement through time. Because I think that that's going to be really important. Um, and and so, it would also, sorry. Oh, no. And I was just going to say that I think the issue that you raised about preservation is going to be incredibly fascinating and difficult um, regarding whether the monuments are cleaned or whether they are left in their, in their current state. Um, I certainly hope the latter. Well, and it's interesting because when you talk about the community that will want to visit the statues, they will have very different reasons for wanting to. So for, for some, they will want to return to this myth of the, the South. Um, and for them, they would want to see them pristine and a title more akin to, you know, statues of the Confederacy. Um, as opposed to other members of the community who would very much want to see the statues graffitied as a statement of a change in attitudes towards white supremacy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a remarkable conversation. Mm -hmm. um, before we end, tell me a little bit about social media and how how this, the neo-Confederates have used social media and the effect that, that that has had on the wider conversation? So social media, I think, and certainly in the present moment, social media is playing an incredibly important role in mobilizing protesters um, in response to the removal of monuments um, and certainly other icons of the Confederacy and other icons of white supremacy culture. But the neo-Confederates who I study in the book are using social media, and particularly Facebook and Twitter, in ways that are intended, one, I think, to bridge connections across time and space um, by allowing folks outside of the state of Virginia, for instance, to participate in these acts, um, but also at the same time to, in many ways, trivialize the the efforts of of counter protests. Um, so I in the book talk about the the quote unquote tarp wars um, that the Virginia flaggers repeatedly reference, um, and what that is essentially hearkening is the tarps that were placed over the Confederate statues in Charlottesville after the deadly violence that had occurred there, and repeated efforts on the part of neo-Confederates to remove said tarps um, and to enable the monuments to Robert E. Lee, for instance, to be visible once again in Charlottesville. And so this hashtag tarp wars becomes a sort of mockery of the counter-protest, um, an attempt to cast this whole debate as if it were you know, a Star Wars-esque um, 
fight between good and evil, but instead, in which case, the Virginia flaggers and neo-Confederates are those who are the heroes and those who are trying to remove, those who are trying to call for context and calling out these monuments as icons of white supremacy culture are being cast as the villains. And social media becomes a way to circulate that narrative in not only through language, but also through image in, I think, some really disturbing ways. Um, Again, that trivialize an incredibly important and ultimately life and death conversation. Um, It's especially in the wake of Charleston in 2015 and Charlottesville two years later, the conversation is, is not, yes, it is about monuments, um, but it is about race and racism in the United States. And to see the ways in which neo-Confederates manipulate social media in order to trivialize and to essentially joke about efforts to call out and to work toward racial justice um, is, as I said, profoundly disturbing, but a part of the ways in which they utilize social media and manipulate its potential. Well, Nicole, I want to thank you for writing this book and um, making the time to uh, talk with us today. Um, It is It is a profoundly disturbing book, but it's actually also a profoundly optimistic book in that it is sort of handing us a a toolbox to the readers, a a way of sort of putting on special glasses that allow or allowed me at least to to see um, the, the very precise way in which the manipulation takes place. And I think that no matter how developed an understanding you think you have of these symbols of white supremacy, this book fine-tunes them even more. So I think it's it's a remarkably helpful book for people who know very little about this subject, and it's also a nuanced and important book for people who consider themselves knowledgeable. So thank you so much um, for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Nicole. Mauritanio's Confederate Exceptionalism, Civil War, Myth, and Memory in the 21st Century is available at the University of Kansas Press website. It's available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and we're also, or I'm also encouraging people in the pandemic to try out bookshop.org, which allows you to order the book from a nearby brick-and-mortar bookstore that will mail it to you um, at home during the pandemic. So thanks again. And oh, Nicole, what's your, what's your, what are you working on now? What's your next book? So my next project is working on, is looking at plantation weddings and the ways in which the plantation has become a site of celebration or can, can be a site of celebration amidst its deeply troubling history of slavery and racism. Well, when you're finished, we'll, we'll love to have you back on the show. Looking forward to it.